I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Just a heads up for people who are listening and don't like curse words, there are a couple in this episode. So this story starts with a soft-spoken... Should I say who I am? Jeez. Taylor Quimby. You're Sam Evans-Brown. Yes, I am. And this story starts with a soft-spoken gentleman named David. Hi, my name is David Burrill. He's just over 40. He's got a bushy salt-and-pepper beard, very heavy on the salt. And he is an avid hiker. Back in August of 2018, I was with my son... Uh, we were working on his list, uh, 4,000 footers. And for uh, for the listeners who aren't from the Northeast, there are 67 mountains in New England that are higher than 4,000 feet, and trying to climb them all is is a thing that a lot of people do. It's like Colorado's 14ers, except 10,000 feet stumpier. I don't know if everybody will like that characterization. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> David and his son were hiking on one of the most popular peaks here in New Hampshire, Mount Lafayette. And uh, we had just got done eating lunch, and uh, we were getting ready to head back down. As I was packing up, I happened to notice that there was a small stone. Um, I had looked at it and uh, noticed that there was a name inscribed on it. Huh. So it was, and it was face up, the inscription? Yes. How big was it? Uh, roughly about the, the size of a tennis ball. And the inscription said? Dr. John B. MacDonald. Hi, I'm Patrice Barkland. And I'm Kelsey Barkland. I'm the granddaughter of Do- John B. MacDonald. Kelsey loves the outdoors. In fact, she through-hiked the whole Appalachian Trail in 2015. What's your trail name? Um, Poppins, like Mary Poppins. It is a love that was passed down in part from her grandfather, John. He had his plan for the weekend, what he was going to do. Oh, by Wednesday. By Wednesday. And if you weren't on board, you're not going. So <laughs> I think that's a, I live by that rule. So it's a good rule. On April 1st, 2015, Kelsey had just started hiking the AT, when her grandfather passed away at age 92. When we went up to New Hampshire, I decided that since Mount Lafayette is one of his favorites and he loves the whites, that I would do something in memory of him. And that's where we got the idea to do the Memorial Rock. She actually made two Memorial Rocks. The first one was written in black nail polish. So that was actually a really good day and very windy. We have a photo of 
me holding the rock and it's my hair is just whipping in the wind. <laughs> and the second one she brought up a year later. This one was smooth and she had it engraved with John's name. The dates, June 11th, 1922 and April 1st, 2015. And three words in quotations, rise above it. I wouldn't think anybody would find it, but I know it's there and that's all that matters. Now this is the rock that David found. There's a lot of negativity in the world. There's not enough positivity. So when I saw it rise above it, it's definitely something to live by. Now I should say that avid hiker as he is, David is a member of a closed Facebook group, the 4,000 Footer Club. Are you Sam? <laughs> no. Okay, well, I am. Uh, it's a big group. There's more than 17,000 members. And mostly people are just like posting about trail conditions and sharing, you know, sunset pictures and um, that kind of stuff. But also, I will admit, they argue a lot. On Facebook? On Facebook. I know. It's shocking. <laughs> Weird. And so David, for some reason, was curious. What would these folks on the Facebook group think about the memorial stone that he found? I'd snap the picture I posted on Facebook. Um, and it was definitely... Uh, a range of, of opinions. I reached out to a lot of these folks, and you will hear them throughout this story. I guess, what's your feeling about the memorial stones? I hate them. You know, some people suggested, well, take it. I think I would. I think I'd remove it. You know, it doesn't belong up there. It's trash. It just it doesn't belong out there. I'm going to go up there the next time I'm up there, which is very soon, and I'm going to go take it, and I'm going to go throw it away. What happens if everyone puts one of those stones? or little sticks or little trinkets or something out there. It's a real quandary. Let it be. To me, it's trash. It's not like it's trash or anything else. It's a rock. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today we're examining a set of educational principles created in the 80s and 90s called Leave No Trace. The idea that when you go camping or go for a hike, the only thing you should ever leave behind are footprints. But in a world where every step has some small impact, what does it mean to leave no trace? And just how far can you take this idea? So how should we um, how should we get into this? Yeah, well, you can tell this part of this story because you were in the interview with Jeff. It's one of those outdoor nuts. You know, I spent a lot of time climbing, a lot of time backpacking, caving. So this is Jeff Marion. He's a scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey and one of let's say many architects of Leave No Trace. And I do research on uh, visitor impacts to protected natural areas. Now, when Jeff was a kid in the '60s, people had very different ideas about how we should behave in the wilderness. Yeah, tree damage in particular was was much bigger back then. It was normal for campers to clear land, to cut down fresh firewood. Chop, 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 Boy Scouts. I mean, it was back in the era when, you know, ditching a, a, a tent was okay and washing your dishes in the creek and then the spring was okay and, you know, and, you know, complete with soap suds. Ditching a tent, what's that? Um, digging a small, you know, trench around the tent so that when it rains and the water comes down the hill, it doesn't flow into or under your tent. That sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it falls into the, well, what if everyone did it category today? It's a scary thought. The, 
what if everyone did it question, you're going to hear that a lot in this episode. And it was an especially pressing question back then because in the 60s and 70s, camping and hiking had suddenly become mainstream activities. In 1950, National Park Service areas saw 33 million visitors. In 1970, just 20 years later, that number had increased to 172 million. And those Boy Scout principles of bring the hatchet and ditch the tent were taking a toll. For example, campsites just started proliferating everywhere. Like in Shenandoah National Park, they just suddenly had hundreds and hundreds of new campsites being created by visitors all over the place. And in, in some cases, right next to you know, blue ribbon trout streams. And around that same time, we were becoming more sensitive to just how fragile some of these ecosystems really were. Trout streams, alpine vegetation, places where it doesn't take much to accidentally kill something. And so, in the 1970s, federal agencies started to come up with a bunch of slogans to help steer all these new outdoor adventurers towards a more sustainable direction. You've probably heard some of these phrases, but it was minimum impact camping or no trace camping. Um... You know, it, it it was pack it in, pack it out, some of those kinds of cash, catch phrases or take only photos, leave only footprints. There were a lot of those kinds of slogans. And in 1987, the three biggest stakeholders, the National Parks, the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, all came together and put out a pamphlet called Leave No Trace Land Ethics. And included were a handful of basic principles for people spending time in natural landscapes. Number one. Be smart about preparation. Know where you're going. Have the right gear. Don't bring unnecessary crap. Like like a boombox? I shouldn't bring a boombox? <laughs> you can. Just don't, don't leave it there. Number two, concentrate impacts in high-use areas. In popular areas, stay on the trails and camp in the campgrounds. And whenever possible, walk on rocks, not on plants. Oh, uh, yeah. Durable surfaces, Taylor. It's all about durable surfaces. Number three, Spread use and impact in pristine areas. In the backcountry, where there aren't trails, don't make new ones. Spread out. Don't walk single file. Oh, side to side. Because that makes trails. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number four, pack it in, pack it out. Take your shit home with you. Number five, properly dispose of what you cannot pack out. I believe that this one is literally referring to shit. (laughs) (laughs) Bury that poo. Uh, Number six, Leave what you find. Take home your trash, but don't take natural things with you. No rock collections, walking sticks, or squirrel pets. This is the saddest one from a childhood perspective. Well, I mean, certainly the rock collections. Your boy's a rock collector. Well, I buy all those at, at uh, licensed areas. I don't. We don't steal them. Oh, my God. And finally, number seven, campfire building. If you must do it, keep it small and do it in a place where there's already been one and only use little sticks from the ground, not cut from living trees for firewood. The green stuff never burns well anyway. But sometimes campers like that because they call it a smudge, keeps the mosquitoes away. Really? Yeah. Mm, Those people are not following Leave No Trace. Yeah, those people are not. You don't hang out with them in the woods. While the principles of Leave No Trace, or LNT, may sound pretty straightforward, for the advanced practitioner, it actually does get pretty complicated. So whereas the hiker who is familiar with biodegradability might pack out their candy wrappers but throw banana peels into the woods... You know, they're thinking, what's the harm? The LNT-trained person will gently point out those banana peels actually take a pretty long time to decompose. And they might attract animals that would start hanging around the trail looking for scraps. I went for a hike the other day. There was there was squirrels at the top, and it actually tried to go into my bag, and it climbed up my leg. <laughs> Somebody been feeding that squirrel. That sounds like a fake story. It's real. I have pictures. I have picture proof. 
<laughs> okay, well, uh, let's take it to the next level. A beginner Leave No Trace advocate may know that if you have to poop in the woods, you ought to be a certain distance from trails and from water sources, and that you want to bury your poo in a cat hole six to eight inches deep. But the diehard Leave No Tracer might go an extra step and say, you really ought to put your used toilet paper in a plastic container and pack it out with you. Or actually pack out your poop, too. Yeah, that's a thing. I've, you know, looked at that from a scientist's perspective and asked the question, you know, how important is it that people carry out toilet paper? And my own determinations has been not very. And, you know, a lot of people in the Leave No Trace community will perk up their heads at that and say, what? <laughs> what did he say? Um, and in fact, I've done some studies where we've buried toilet paper uh, in, the, in the ground, you know, at six or so inches deep, and we've dug it up a year later, and it's completely gone. Now, in, in Western deserts, no, not so much. You pretty much need to carry it out. So one way to understand uh, this set of contradictions is that Leave No Trace is primarily a set of ethical principles rather than a specific set of rules. It's not black and white. It's not, you know, this is the only best practice and those other practices are awful. Don't do them. Um, It's always shades of gray. But while ethics are more flexible than hard rules, they also, as we heard with the toilet paper example, leave room for well-intentioned people to disagree about what is and isn't worth getting worked up over. For example, you might know that feeding wildlife is a generally bad idea and against LNT. Don't don't feed bears. Do not feed bears. Don't feed the bears. <laughs> but you might see little harm in feeding a bit of bread to, say, a friendly opportunist like the mountaintop birds that are on a lot of the White Mountain peaks. My 13-year-old went hiking for, with me uh, last winter. And the second he saw the gray jays, he was like, wow, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. And then when he found out he could feed them out of his hand, Oh, he, yeah. was, he was literally hooked. Don't feed the jaybirds. It's not in their nature to eat human food. Now you're leaving a trace behind. You're, you're changing the environment. But while there are those who are debating the finer points of Leave No Trace, clearly not every hiker has heard about these principles. Um, Mount Lafayette had actually been subject to a um, fake skeleton earlier in the year. A what? A fake skeleton. I love how it's it's been subject to a fake skeleton as if as if it had just dropped from the sky. Well, that's what I mean. You know, nobody knows where the thing came from. The skeleton got a nickname, Bonesy. And whoever put it up there, they like wedged it into a cairn near the summit during the warm months. And it stayed all winter long. It got totally frozen in in ice. Um, and, and so you can see tons of pictures of Bonesy on this Facebook page. Um, some people are making jokes. Some people are like posing with it. But let's let's be honest. A lot of people are upset because one person's practical joke is really just another person's garbage. And so with all these examples, I personally find myself sometimes wishing, like, couldn't there just be that singular authority that we could look to to say, yes, this is OK. No, this is bad. And for the purposes of this story, Jeff Marion is the closest thing we've got. So I have gotten comfortable eating the entire apple core, but I still spit out the seeds. Yep. Um, so you're asking, is it okay to spit out the seeds? I'm just, I'm just saying. What do you think? I mean, <laughs> um, well, again, it, it would depend. I, I rarely see um, apple or orange seeds. I, well, in fact, I have never seen an, an apple tree or an orange tree or something like that growing out in the side of the trail at a place where people eat lunch. And so I, I would say that that's an inconsequential problem that, you know, I wouldn't lose any sleep over. Okay. All right. See, see, that's that's big. You just said a word that we haven't heard, inconsequential, <laughs> which is 
an impact that may violate Leave No Trace, but is so small, it it's hard to imagine that it matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we asked Jeff, theoretically, if someone were to leave an engraved stone on the top of a mountain, where would that fall on the Leave No Trace spectrum? You know, I actually came with a little data here, uh, and I'm going to read it to you right now because it's appropriate. An estimated 146 million Americans participated in an estimated 10.9 billion outdoor recreation activities in 2017. Um, You know, if one person leaves one rock on top of one mountain, I would say that it's inconsequential. But, you know, 146 million people leaving those rocks? Um, You know, it, it isn't inconsequential. Uh, if enough people do it, and it doesn't take a lot, uh, it's going to have a significant impact. I, you know, I hate to always, you know, resort to that. It's kind of a cop-out, like, well, what if everyone did it? If every single person that came up here left something, what would it look like? But, you know, that's a pretty powerful issue with respect to Leave No Traces. What if everyone did it? What happens if everyone puts one of those stones or little sticks or little trinkets or something out there? Now, obviously, there were a lot of people who thought that the rocks are a problem waiting to happen. They're with Jeff that, you know, what if everybody does it? I want you to see if you can guess the three biggest opposing arguments. So people who think the rocks are fine? Yeah, defenders of the memorial stone. Okay, so first stab at it. Um, You know, you can't go into the wilderness without leaving some sort of trace. Exactly, exactly. I would say the number one rhetorical immediate pushback Listen, folks, there's no such thing as leave no trace. Right. You're you're all kidding yourselves. You're leaving traces like crazy. Yeah. And and so, like, why draw the line here? Like, mm-hmm. a footprint is literally a trace. Yeah. <laughs> and enough footprints, actually, is what creates things like paths and erosion and stuff like that. So, you know, we can't go to extremes with it because that's not realistic or logical. So it, my opinion was that the stone was not really a very big deal in the grand scheme of things. Um, okay, so what was idea number two? It's another philosophical one. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, is it that, like, they're okay with some types of impact but not okay with others, like cairns and blazes and that kind of thing are okay, but, but like, oh, memorial stones aren't. What's, like, are you a memorial stone... <laughs> Memorial stone bigot. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yes, it ex- exactly. It's a consistency problem. You're going to be that deep into it and that technical about it. Then you have to take down all of the signs that are up. You have to take down all the markers and everything that's ever been man-made put on there. No cairns. Like, no trails. Like, trails are ugly. Yeah, no hiker huts, cabins yeah. on top of mountains type of thing. Buildings? Are we joking here? So no observatory towers? Mm-mm. No fire towers? Yeah. Third one? Now, the third one is more specific to the memorial stone. Is the m- memorial stones are nice and, and, like, leave them alone? No, the third one, I would say, was... The slippery slope, the whole what if everybody did it thing, is a fallacy. You know, what if everybody brought an engraved rock up there and I said, but not everybody is. Just because there's one does not mean there will be 146 million. (laughs) Not everyone's going to do this, so I just don't think this is going to be a big deal. This is a pretty rare thing. I've done all the 48 and I've done almost all the Appalachian Trail in Maine. You've never seen uh, like a memorial stone or anything? I, I have not. 
every hiker who goes into the wilderness would have to have had a parent who had recently died and also really loved hiking. And also they wanted to go through this process of making a memorial stone and engraving it and bringing it up and leaving it there. Right, right, right. But what if everyone brought bones each to the top of a mountain? What if? <laughs> That's a, oh, that's a perfect that's a perfect example. What if everybody brought a skeleton to the top of Mount Lafayette? That would be awful. There'd be thousands of skeletons. Have you considered that slippery, slippery slope? <laughs> now, now, Sam, before we totally dismiss the slippery, slippery slope. There is actually an example here that that might favor the slippery slopers. Oh. And we'll talk about it after a break. Cool, 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 cool. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. I'm Taylor Quimby. And Sam, I would like to introduce you to Megan. Come here, Luna. Come on. You don't, you really don't want to have a dog breathing next to me. As I'm- so Megan Murphy lives on Cape Cod. She is the founder of a very unusual grassroots movement. It started about four years ago uh, as a simple hobby. Around 2014, Megan was going through some big changes. She had just jettisoned a successful retail business, sold it off. It wasn't making her happy. Midlife crisis? Uh, it's like a like a semi-midlife crisis. And during this time, she was taking these long walks, as folks will do in a midlife crisis, uh, along the beaches of Cape Cod. And every time she would walk... Something, uh, you know, beautiful uh, would wash ashore in front of me, whether it be a piece of sea glass or a heart-shaped rock. And one day, Megan thinks, maybe I can share this experience with others by writing little messages on rocks and leaving them for other people to find. So on her next walk, she brings a Sharpie and she jots down just a handful of inspirational thoughts on a few rocks she finds. You've got this or the answer lies within. The force is with you. Um, blessings are on their way. That same night, a friend found one of those rocks and texted her. And she was like, Megan, is this your handwriting? And Megan was like, no. She said, well, if it was you, I just want to let you know that I found it and it made me feel better. It was all the validation she needed. Megan started painting more rocks. She started leaving more rocks. And then... I took a piece of driftwood and I just simply painted on the piece of driftwood saying, you know, um, take one if you need one, add one to the pile. (laughs) Do you ever get inspirational writer's block? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But thank goodness for the internet. 
Speaking of the internet, around this time, Megan's daughter comes up with an idea that on the backs of the rocks, they should put a hashtag, hashtag kindness rocks. And so now when people find and post the rocks, you know, Megan can see all these folks who are posting uh, her rocks. Why does everything have to become social media memes? Can't you just find a nice rock? How are you going to track those rocks without a hashtag, man? Something as simple and little as a rock can make a big impact. (gasps) A painted rock! We are here working on on the kindness rocks for our school. Angels are with you, or you're not alone, or um, have hope. You're special, keep going, you got this. Mine says, smile. This one's going to say, be yourself. Yeah, it's, well... I can only tell you the scale is huge. I mean, every day my pages on social media grow. I have over 100,000 followers. So that's a that's a lot of rocks. That's a genuine trend. Yeah. And um, right after Thanksgiving this year, Megan kind of hit the big time. She went on one of the biggest morning programs on TV, the Today Show. In my garage is where we do the spray painting. The Kindness Rocks mission gave Karen a sense of purpose. So she started her own chapter in Alyssa's honor. When I'm having bad days and I hear about the rocks helping other people have better days, they ultimately make me feel like I'm having a better day. Look at my rocks. Obviously, anytime you're on national television, you know, that brings a lot of attention. And um, both good and bad. Oh, thank you. Megan and Karen, thank you for sharing your story and spreading a little kindness. You can find out more about Well, one person's movement is another person's slippery slope. And unbeknownst to Megan, her legions of inspirational artists have been depositing kindness rocks not just on beaches and in urban spaces, but also on trails and in national forests. What I love about hiking in the mountains is it's just nature. So this is Greg Ream, also an avid hiker and an unabashed hater of kindness rocks. (laughs) One's literally sitting on my desk in front of me. It's a, looks like a, looks like a painted uh, ladybug, green and black with two googly eyes. Oh, and the, oh, see, not into it? That's, that's just not tasteful. And here's a, another kindness rock hater, Sue Mills. A friend and I went up and hiked Mount Field, uh, caught to the summit, and there was a little plastic rubber duck and a kindness rock. The first thing that I saw, and my blood just boiled. I was so annoyed. So Greg and Sue are just a couple of the many hikers from the 4,000-footer group who make a conscious effort to remove painted rocks from trails and mountaintops. They'll, they'll truck them back out. So I've took both of them and stuck them in my backpack. And, you know, a few posters have, have put up pictures where they have literal collections in their backyards, uh, you know, like or on a porch where there's six, seven, eight kindness stones sort of lining the porch. What, like, what do you do when you find a painted rock? Like, what's the process? Uh, pick it up, throw it in my backpack, um, and pack it out, and throw it in the trash, typically. <laughs> you throw a rock in the trash? <laughs> uh, it's trash. To, see, to me, it's trash. So, same thing I do with a, with a wrapper. That's part, that's, this is... You don't, uh... you don't throw rocks in the trash, Sam? <laughs> You know, when a rock breaks, I just I throw it in the trash. It's broken. This rock's no good anymore. Yeah. I, oh, we'll come back to this. <laughs> okay. We'll come back to this. Everybody I spoke with for this story um, thought the kindness rocks were awful. Uh, even David, who initially posted John B. McDonald's memorial stone. Painting rocks and then leaving them in random places. I mean. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> 
Sorry, but that's trash. And like a lot of people pointed to this one specific example on the top of a mountain here in New Hampshire that really drove them crazy. My name is Doug Brown. Doug, also an avid hiker, like 90% of the people in here. I use the word avid before every time I wrote hiker. I didn't mean to do that. There are no hikers who are not avid. A friend of mine was about to move out to a new job out west, and we wanted to catch one more hike before she left. And Cardigan is an easy one to get out to uh, for a sunrise hike in the summer, and seemed right, so we, we went up there. But when they got there, Doug saw a kindness rock. And this one is like a very big kind of rock. <laughs> the rock was probably about six feet wide and a couple feet tall. And it was painted um, in spray paint or something pretty um, permanent. And it said kind of cool with mountains and uh, like a smiley face, um, I think. And the style is like high school notebook doodle. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's a fair way to call it. A few days later, somebody tried to clean it up with a wire brush and some paint remover, which I hear is arguably worse for the environment <laughs> than the actual paint. I would argue that. Yeah. Uh, regardless, I actually went up just a few weeks ago, uh, and it is still there. You showed me this video. A little windy? Yeah, well, it's January. <laughs> I found the rock. It's pretty faded now, but I don't know how long it's going to take for this to go away. Up at the top on the actual tower, let's not forget that there is a, like, 30-foot man-made tower on the top of this mountain. The door says Shuby in white spray paint. So this must be a spot where people, people are coming to tag for some reason. So I think we can we can genuinely ask, does the kindness rock trend have an environmental impact? Well, an environmental impact, though. Yes. Like, does, does nature care that there are kindness rocks on the tops of these mountains? Do the rocks as the trend is now, which is to say <laughs> there are a few here and there going yeah. up and down. Is that causing a real problem that we can say, like, yeah, you know, this is uh, this is an issue? Is it lead-based paint? Uh, Megan encourages everybody to use uh, environmentally friendly paint, but but a lot of people will talk about paint. Yeah, I. So, you know, I'm not gonna say that I'm a fan of the kindness rocks, but I also think that it's pretty unlikely that they're they're actually harming anything. So one of the arguments that Jeff Marion made, remember he's our LNT expert for this episode, is. What if everybody is picking these rocks up from rivers? If there's thousands of people taking them out of the creek, what about the invertebrates that live on those stones, the aquatic um, insects that live on those stones? What about the uh, you know the eggs of trout that get laid in between those stones? <laughs> you know, I mean, rocks are like a big part of yeah, the, uh, the ecosystem for yeah. small fish and marine ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but like. Why would people like wade into a frozen, a freezing cold river to get like one rock out of the bottom where they're when they're literally surrounded by rocks and there are rocks all around them? Yeah, it's you know maybe one or two people would grab a river rock, but it seems like most people would just grab one of the numerous other rocks. Arguably, where you have to go with this is that what people are really upset about is this other part of leave no trace that we haven't talked about yet, um, 
Because the Forest Service and the national parks, they aren't just trying to conserve wilderness. They have a dual mandate. And the other side of that mandate is to provide for appropriate types and amounts of, you know, legitimate or, or appropriate recreational activity. Jeff says even back in the 70s, this idea of how we share the wilderness was becoming a problem. People trying to experience solitude in the outdoors were not finding it. Um, So problems with crowding, problems with conflicts between different types of users like hikers versus horseback riders. And what's ironic is that the principle that protects our most popular areas of wilderness, this is rule number two, concentrate impacts in areas that get a lot of use, is the same principle that's likely to cause conflict between hikers. You really want to come up with one good, sustainable trail and keep people on it to the extent that you can. Crowding is a big, big deal. But that impact is contained to that one narrow trail. I have to say, this this for me was like one of the biggest revelations. Yeah. Because we hear this all the time, people saying like, oh, we're loving our wilderness to death. Yeah. When you say that... What you're really saying is that there are a lot of people in one place, which actually might be a sign of success in terms of leave no trace. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. But still, this aesthetic idea of enjoying a quiet, solitary mountaintop or trail, it actually has made its way into the updated list of leave no trace principles. It is the new rule number seven. Be considerate of other visitors. Look after your pet. Don't shout or have loud conversations. Basically, don't be obnoxious. Don't be like me. Win toe shoes with a boombox. <laughs> and from this standpoint, you don't have to make the same argument that something has to have real environmental impact. You just have to make the argument that it's annoying to hikers. These massive groups that go out now, you know, there's 15, 20 people, these big squads that go out hiking, and that's a lot of impact. Think of all the noise of everybody yapping and, and talking, and just that is it. it it takes away from that solitude that some of us, you know, really want to try to t- try to capture out there. So there are a couple of other interesting points that I just want to talk about. Um, point number one is an academic criticism of Leave No Trace that's been put out by a geographer named Gregory Simon. And that is basically that the whole concept segregates areas of, quote unquote, pristine wilderness from the rest of society. And sometimes this is at the expense of a broader environmental ethic that actually accomplishes something. Yeah, the idea of the wilderness is sort of this island, you know, that somehow can be cordoned off, roped off and separated from the rest of, you know, the world and that Leave No Trace sort of buys into that. And we kind of say, well, you should be thinking about Leave No Trace from cash register to campsite. Or in another place we say, you know, Leave No Trace starts at home. Right, so this is what I was talking about with the guy who's taking rocks and throwing them in the trash. These landfills that are, like, incredibly expensive to make, he's filling it up with stones. Right, right. And, like, the the idea that that's a a better environmental outcome than just, like, a painted rock being on top of a mountain somewhere. That's crazy. Right. And point number two is that Leave No Trace is an educational uh, mission. The point is not to be right for the sake of being right. It's practical. You're trying to be a good environmental steward, but also you're trying to teach other people to do the same so you don't want to just piss them off inconsequential or not, it, well, it's it's a judgment call. Sometimes I, I bite my my lip and I, I shut up and, and I don't be the, the L&T Nazi. In other cases, I am that person and I don't apologize for it. And deciding when and how to be that person, I think maybe is as tricky as following Leave No Trace itself. Um, Megan Murphy, the Kindness Rocks lady, says she heard from some really thoughtful outdoors people after her Today Show interview. Uh, You know, they reached out. They said, listen, this is becoming a problem. And now she teaches her followers the principles of Leave No Trace. 
But she also received, like, in the mail, rocks with mean messages from angry hikers who would rather shame than educate her. You know, that's not a way to communicate. That's not a way to get your point across. Um, Bullying uh, by way of hate rocks is not acceptable. And, um, you know, it's not okay. And so I wind up back at this story about Kelsey Barkland and the memorial stone. And I think we have to ask, is this the moment to be the LNT Nazi, as Jeff put it, or is this the time to let it go? I mean, I think it really tells you something that she herself is a Leave No Trace adherent. That's right. The whole family is. I'm kind of the person who gives people the stink eye when they walk off trail. And I am also the one who, when I pull over for someone, when I'm going downhill and they're going up, I say, uphill has the right of way. And I try to inform people of the rules of mountains. When I was doing it, I was like, this is kind of against Leave No Trace, but it means a lot to me, things like that. So it's interesting because I had the, the whole you know, devil and angel on my shoulder while doing it. And the other thing, too, is that my dad was an advocate for Leave No Trace. And for how many years, 50, 60 years, that he trained people not to leave stuff in the woods. And if he saw it, he picked it up. You know, Sam, I think that most memorials that we think about are meant to be seen. Um, You know, you put them out so that people can read, like, the memorial of a person. But what's weird in this case is that uh, that wasn't really the idea. For Kelsey, it was more like a symbolic gesture. I said, I went about 200 feet off trail and hid this rock in a um, kind of area that I wouldn't think anybody would find it, but I know it's there, and that's all that matters. So that is interesting. Somebody did find it, but imagine if no one ever did. Like, would that still be a violation of leave no trace? It's kind of like, um, it's like that saying, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, did it make a sound? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just (laughs) like that. Because the diehard leave no traces will say, of course it makes a sound. You just can't hear it, you idiots. (laughs) It's physics. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Justine Paradise, Nick Capodice, and our executive producer, Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is the director of the Kindness Smock Project. <laughs> Special thanks to all the members of the 4,000-footer group on Facebook, especially those willing to talk for this episode. Doug Brown, Greg Ream, Mark Courtney, Mary Welsh, Sue Mills, and Zachary Berger. Honorary mention to George Philbrook, who scrubbed the giant kindness rock on Mount Cardigan. Check out OutsideInRadio.org to see some of the pictures of the memorial stone in question, the Mount Cardigan Kindness Rock disaster, as well as some painted rocks that have been unwilded from various trails and mountain peaks. Music from this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions and the Itchy Creeps. Our theme music... That was me. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Stepping on my lines. Jeez. Okay, no one can tell the part anyway. <laughs>
I've only had to poop in the woods once. What? Yeah. Taylor. Yeah. You, you should be disqualified from working on this show.